Hello and welcome back to a Shakespearean Midsummer Nights podcast. I'm Anna. And I'm Natalie. And today we will be talking about teenagers. <sighs> yeah, um, let's just, for all of you who are listening who aren't teenagers or who have never interacted with a teenager, which is very unlikely. Actually, no, I can't think of a circumstance where you've never met a teenager before, never been a teenager. Never mind. Teenagers Unless are Unless you're awful. like 10. But what 10-year-old is listening to this? But the moral of the story is, Teenagers huh, is about Romeo and Juliet, where every single time anyone does anything, you just kind of go, huh. And sometimes it's a romantic, Aww. And sometimes it's, Because, you know, good decisions are made. Bad decisions are made. I don't... More bad decisions are made. I think we can count on one hand all of the good decisions that were made, whereas the bad decisions, it would take all ten of my fingers, all ten of my toes, and probably all of yours, too. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, teenagers in general, just... I don't like teenagers, and I'm a teenager. I just don't like teenagers. I'll walk into a room and there will be teenagers and I just feel intimidated by their presence and I'm like, nope, nope, I'm, I'm leaving this room. Nope, well, no thank you. You know what my chemical romance said? Teenagers teenager scare, scare the, the living, living heck out of me. Out of me. They could care less as long as someone would lead. So, so dark, dark in your clothes, clothes I'll strike up a violent pose. Maybe they'll leave you alone, but, but not, not me. me. The, 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 the. Okay. Alright. Sing, like, singing My Chemical Romance, I feel, goes very well because these are some very emo teenagers. Oh my god, they're so emo. I mean, let's just talk for one second about how Romeo is all emo and he's like, uh, Rosaline, she won't let me hit that. Oh, I'm so sad. I do feel, I do feel like. I related to this play a lot more freshman year when I was still in my emo phase. So, <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's jump into the summary. Go ahead. Alrighty. So, we start the scene in Fair Verona. And oh, no, 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 it's in Fair Verona where we lay our scene. I'm sorry. I can I can recite the introduction. In Fair Verona where we lay our scene. Can I do the introduction? Can no, I do the, we don't have like, time, my okay. dear. Two households, both alike in dignity, in Fair Verona where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes our civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their lives. <laughs> They're misadventured. She's checking the text. <laughs> Their misadventured, piteous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strength. Doth with their death. Oh, I'm sorry. From uh, shoot, you threw me off my Who's rhythm. You threw me off my rhythm. Who was misadventured, piteous? Pity. Never mind. You threw me off my rhythm. I'm just saying. Fun fact about the prologue. Actually, Shakespeare added it back in after the crowd saw the play initially and thought it was a comedy, but then everyone started just dying and being killed, and they were like, Shakespeare, how could you do this to us? So we had to add the prologue as a warning to say, it's gonna get a lot worse from here. So, back to the actual summary, if Anna didn't interrupt me. I'm sorry. In Fair Verona, where we lay our scene, two warring families, the Montagues and the Capulets, duke it out in the town square. After they duke it out, Romeo enters, depressed, because his crush Rosaline won't let him smash. So his buddies, Benvolio and Mercutio, say, hey, the best way to get over a girl is to break into your enemy's masquerade ball. While there, 
Romeo meets Juliet, a 13-year-old girl who is considering being engaged to Paris, who is another Capulet. Tybalt, her cousin, realizes that the Montagues have infiltrated the party, but Lord Capulet tells him to kind of chill out. After flirting, Romeo and Juliet each learn that the other is their sworn enemy. Romeo dawdles outside of Juliet's balcony where they profess their love and agree to get married. He then goes to Friar Lawrence, who agrees to marry them in secret, and the next afternoon they get hitched. Meanwhile, Benvolio and Mercutio, two people who are allied with the Montagues, come across Tybalt, who is looking for Romeo to start a fight. And when Romeo comes out of the church talking about love and peace, Tybalt challenges him, but Mercutio steps up to fight. As Romeo ties, tries to stop the brawl, Tybalt's sword goes under Romeo's arm and stabs Mercutio. Mercutio is taken off stage to die, and Benvolio tells Romeo, who then flies into a rage and kills Tybalt. Romeo flees the scene, because, you know... You don't want to be caught with the dead body you just murdered. And the prince of Verona exiles Romeo. The nurse tells Juliet what happened, and Juliet cries for Tybalt, and then she cries for Romeo's banishment. Meanwhile, Romeo is crying in Fire Lawrence's basement when the nurse tells him of Juliet's grief, and Romeo almost stabs himself, but the fire stops him. He spends one last night with his wife before fleeing to Mantua, and after he leaves, Juliet learns that her father is forcing her to marry Paris unless he will throw her out in the street, like basically disown her completely. Juliet and the friar plot to fake her death with a potion that puts her into a coma, and then Romeo will fetch her from the Capulet tomb. She does so, but Romeo's man Balthazar comes and tells him the news of her quote-unquote death before Friar Lawrence's messenger can, and Romeo buys poison to return and returns to Verona. Paris is mourning at Juliet's tomb when Romeo comes, and they fight before Romeo kills Paris. Accidentally, he didn't know who it was, but he still committed another murder. Romeo kisses Juliet and take and drinks the poison right before Juliet awakens. Friar Lawrence tries to get Juliet to leave, but she refuses, takes Romeo's dagger, and stabs herself. As news spreads, the Capulet and Montagues come to the tomb and learn the truth from Fi Friar Lawrence, finally agreeing to peace from then on. Yeah, it's not a comedy. I don't know why they'd ever think that that's a comedy. No, it's it's pretty freaking funny. Okay, there are it's funny, but like when you say it like the way that you just said it, it's not comedic. I mean, I I told the plot straight. I didn't add in any of the fun. Like I didn't even go off on Mercutio's entire like baiting of Romeo of oh you had a dream last night and he's like yeah and Romeo says I had a dream er, Mercutio says I had a dream last night too and Romeo's like oh what dream did you have and Mercutio's like heh that you're lying you fool so there's definitely nuances of humor and comedic elements within the play mm -hmm. that weren't necessarily that were evident to viewers but then all of a sudden because like there are little jokes but it's not a comedy but it was being set up to be the comedy, yeah. which is the difference. And also, the concept of comedy, if you're looking at, like, the textual definition of a comedy versus, like, oh, this is a comedy because it's funny, it's kind of, there are two different concepts. Mm -hmm. So this one actually ended up turning to be a tragedy because of the tragic flaw of Romeo's, I suppose you could say his, I, I would say Romeo's tragic flaw is... His, not his indecisiveness, but he decides too quickly. He's too quick to jump the gun. Yeah, because he, first he like jump, um, so then he jumps head first into buying the poison and being like, I cannot live without Juliet. And so then it all, and then it all crumbles before him. Yeah. 
But that scene where he is, where he and Mercutio are like, oh, the dreams, that is a good bit. Mm -hmm. Like, that is the definition of boys will be boys right there. Yeah, that is what boys will be boys should be. I do think it is kind of funny that both Benvolio and Mercutio kind of call Romeo out because he's like, oh, Rosaline wants to be a nun, so she won't have sex with me. And it's like, both of them are kind of like, Honestly, Romeo, you sound really stuck up right now. <laughs> like, they will call him out on what happened. That is... They're like, we'll, get, we'll go to good. a party, you'll meet someone else, forget about her. That's what friends do. That is what friends do. Like, they go to parties that the other one drags them to, even though they don't want to, just because of boys there, and they're like, oh yeah, you're coming with me. And then the whole night is just really weird. Natalie, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, I did that once it was a nice concert it was um yeah it was okay my ears were kind of like thumping by the end of the night well it was also in someone's basement so not much room for the sound to escape (laughs) also the mosh pit that hurt my toes yeah again teenagers are always a great idea um but i do think i if if we're looking at the best characters in this play and i know you can be like oh romeo Juliet, but Mercutio is the guy. Honestly, I love Tybalt. I don't know why. I've always just been like, Tybalt's a good guy. I don't know. I don't know. Something about Tybalt is just like, you know what? I can respect that. Tybalt, if if I were to compare this to Avatar The Last Airbender, (laughs) Mercutio is Sokka and Tybalt is Zuko. Okay, but I, every time I watch it, I can't help but Paul Zuko, Emo Ariano Grande, just because of that high ponytail. Oh, okay, we're getting from... That's not the point. We're talking about Mercutio here. I, go back to what you were saying before I said that I liked Tybalt, but that's irrelevant. Mercutio. I, just, I like Mercutio, I think mainly because he's... He is a... He's, first of all, he's not necessarily a Montague or a Capulet. He has allied himself with the Montagues because that's where his friends are, but he, he really has no say in it. Versus like, oh, this is a nonsensical feud that's just been going on with our families. Mercutio at least has kind of a sense of loyalty that is driving him in all of this, which okay. I have respect for. Because I feel like a lot of the other characters don't know if they why they're doing this. You know, I, I can agree with that. And then, having him as kind of like, even though the prince is the true neutral character, having Mercutio as the person to, who is not necessarily part of both worlds, but is rather just chosen to be part of one world, to have like the infamous, a plague on both your houses. Let me find his last line officially, because I that feel like- a good line. Yeah, he is very powerful. Okay, here we go. I right, like three. While you find one. that, I just want to say like- it is kind of interesting, like, none of the characters really know what they're fighting for anymore, mm-hmm. and I think that it is kind of interesting that they have these, like, lines drawn between the two families, and they don't even know why they're there. Yeah. I well, and that's that... really in- I think that's really interesting, as Natalie would oh, say. come on. <laughs> it's just, it's, 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 it's a way for me to start to get my ideas out, and make me okay. start to think more critically. Um, okay, so give me the quote, because so I think that quote... it is a good line. Mercutio's official final line before he is carried off stage to die is, which also, can we note that if people like a character too much, they usually won't let them die on stage. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Like, Ed- yeah. That's Edmund why... is taken off stage to die. Gloucester is killed off stage. Ophelia yeah. is killed off stage. Mercutio is killed off stage. Like all these characters, because they're all kind of like cool. the characters who are just like, yeah, we can vibe. We like we like this character. The they side characters you them. shouldn't like, but then Shakespeare knows you'll like them, and he's like, but you're supposed to be exactly. focusing on them. And we're like, but Mercutio, which by the way, his last line in the play is, "Help me into some house, Benvolio, or I shall faint." He's already fainting. Come on, guys. <laughs> A plague, oh, both your houses. They have made worms meat of me. I have it, and soundly, too. Your houses! And then he exits. And it is interesting that... Oh, there it is. It is... It is... I'm trying to think of good adjectives. Use my English dictionary. It is... You know hablo inglés. Stop it, Anna. Um, it's very... Peculiar. It's very precise in terms of what is going on. That because I do feel that even though Romeo and Juliet's romance is what kicks this off, I feel like Mercutio's death is probably the more emotional catalyst for the actions that happen in the rest of the play. And by having him, his last two words be your houses once again creates that contrast of one versus the other by a person who really should have no should not be involved in any of this his death is not necessarily meaningless because we see what happens later and how it spurs romeo to kill tybalt then romeo is banished then they have their last night then juliet is there and blah 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 but like he shouldn't have died for this i completely agree and i think that seeing how good of a person he was even in a situation that he wasn't required to be in, I think that that's what makes the audience love him so much. Like, they can respect the fact that he is so dedicated and has this passion for what he is fighting for. Mm-hmm. I agree. It, yeah. And then Benvolio, Benvolio is kind of the side guy who you really, you like him, but you don't know why, because he really doesn't have that many lines. Actually, he does have a good chunk in Act 3, Scene 1, because he's the one who explains to everybody what just happened when Mercutio and Tybalt were killed. So he has this huge monologue, and then he doesn't appear again for the rest of the play. Wait a minute, was that the monologue I did sophomore year? Yes, it was the monologue you did. You did a shortened version of it. This thing is a a solid page and a half plus long. I know the first line. Tybalt, here slain, whom Romeo did slay. Romeo's hand. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, no, it is almost one solid, okay, not necessarily solid page, the majority of a page. It's How many lines? lines? 160 to 184. Okay, so 24 lines, 25 lines. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. Yeah, that is, that sounds very, he, and a he, lot. And honestly, it's just kind of funny, because, oh, there's this huge scene, huge battle, oh, it takes so long, and then in 24 lines... Benvolio has summed it up. (laughs) I feel like Benvolio, like, in another lifetime, would have been a really good bard. Just, like, laying it all out. Very precise. Very concise. Like, gets to the point. Yeah, but he has... He's stuck in a family feud. Like, nobody with a a fully formed frontal cortex would have been... Frontal lobe. Would have been able to make any of the decisions that these idiots made in this play. Yeah, but also... I've never... Okay... Me, I have never officially dated anyone, 
but as a person who has had many crushes over the years, I can understand their sentiment. Because <laughs> it is definitely that, oh, I'm gonna just run myself into this and I'm gonna throw myself headfirst and I'm so wooed. That said, would I marry a person in a week? No. Would I... Um, like, I beg to do differ. it at the I age of you 13? Would, I no. know you would marry Richard Madden in a week. Okay, but Richard Madden is a wonderful and kind human being. I'm talking about the you boy who the wanted man. to smash, you have never like, met five hours before he met me. <sighs> Whatever. <sighs> I can't I can't argue anymore. Because <laughs> I'm that good of an arguer no, I just, every time we talk about Richard Madden, I feel the life deflate out of me. Richard Madden is a wonderful person. I'm not going to argue with that, but I don't know. We will. Do you think he would have made... You and I will come back to that conversation <laughs> separately outside of this podcast. Yes. So, I I mean, what I, the basically what I'm trying to say is I understand the romantic sentiments of it. I'd like to think of myself as a romantic. I definitely, I like romance. I like seeing people portray themselves even though the balcony scene is definitely cheesy and it's definitely well at least it has become cheesy throughout the years there is something very genuine about romeo's sentiments in that moment and as like the play or not there is some beautiful poetry in there oh 100 percent. like even in the balcony scene when juliet's like swear not by the moon swear by yourself because the moon is ever changing and you don't want to swear by something that is like not constant or perpetual, like, swear by yourself, you're gonna be here. I think that that is honestly really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Just, like, that concept of, like, people will swear by the moon or swear by the trees or swear, whatever, but, like, no, swear to yourself and swear it by, like, the relationship that we have. I think that that is more sensible than anything else that any of these characters do in the rest of the play. Agreed. There is definitely some lack of sense. And then there's also some confusion. And as mm -hmm. I was... Uh, reviewing it because I had read it a couple years ago and I wanted to make sure that I had at least like refreshed myself on the text before we discussed I noticed the pattern where there is definitely some I can't remember if it's situational is when they don't know something that you is hap they don't know something but the audience knows and dramatic is when they're acting against their character right or is it the other way around I don't know well, it's some I kind honestly of have not irony, read this play in a while. But there is some kind of irony where Romeo almost stabs himself, but then he dies from poison. And then Juliet takes a death-like potion that is kind of poisonous, but then she ends up stabbing herself. So you definitely see that um, juxtaposition between the two of them. And they're contrasting of how they take these mirrored paths, but inverted. And then they'll, they end up together. Yeah. dead by the end and i think that that is kind of ironic but also kind of symbolic about how they're gonna hit like all these obstacles but they were together by the end even though they were uh dead and i think i think that is probably what shakespeare was going for with this play i think is so to show the strength of love and how it will prevail through all and they still ended together but it's just so much worse when there were so many preventable things. Oh my god, 100%. If this was done in a modern era where we had cell phones and texting, It would not exist. None of this would have happened. Nope. Unless they didn't have their phones or, like, their phone had died or Which something Which, like actually, that. 
No, never that mind. No, work. it wouldn't because you you'd better bet Romeo would have left uh Verona with his cell phone because he still would have wanted to know what is happening in Verona and but if he was being but they could track him with his cell phone. No, but so he, he was exiled, not, not chased out. Mm-hmm. So it, if he's exiled, if anything, they want him to take his cell phone that they know he's not coming back to Verona. True. I don't know. I think it would be interesting in a modern day production. I think that you and I might have to work on that and try and create and direct a modern day version of Romeo and It Julia. definitely summons a lot of questions. But even in the modern world today, there are a lot of parallels between what these teenagers do and what current teenagers do. So it's really easy to see, like, there's this trend of just teenagers doing these foolish things from all the way back then, even until now. Well, I feel that current teenagers, throughout the years, as this play has grown to become a symbol of romance and all that stuff, I feel like now... The reason why teenagers are doing what they're doing is because they're looking up to this play, you know? It's kind of been set on a pedestal as an ideal form of love. But I also feel like there are other types of love that are equally as strong. You know, you see this friendship between Romeo and Mercutio and Benvolio and that banter and that joy and that overall friendship that can kind of be just ditched in favor of the romantic plotline but i feel is equally as compelling if you need to know romeo's motives because he doesn't kill tybalt just because he's in love with juliet he does it because tybalt hurt mercutio so there are aspects of the play such as friendships that are kind of overpowered by the romantic sense especially in modern day ideals and i also feel like this concept of dying for one another has kind of become a little bit toxic. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Or, like, not even about the whole romance thing. I feel like this play does have a lot of mirrors within common society. Like, within the friendship that Romeo and his boys have. Like, there's the, what is it, bros before hoes thing? Yeah. Or, like, fries before guys. Like, where we value these friendships more than we value a one-night stand or a partner. And I think that that really is important, and it's something that we should take away instead of just, oh, they died for each other. That is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I agree. But is it worth the hype to really, like, put it up on that pedestal? Like, do you think it's that important? Like, personally, I think it's more of a cautionary tale. Like, don't do this. But do you think it is as important as many people like to say it is? I agree with what you're saying. In my opinion, I agree with you. It definitely takes on more of a cautionary tale of this is what happens when not only do you throw yourself fully into love, but the situations are working against you as well. And there is something to be said about the strength of the love and the full, the wholeheartedness of the love. And A point that I do want to make that we're not really talking about here is that Juliet is 13 years old, so I'm like, yeah, that's creepy. That is not okay. Um, And I feel like looking at the Shakespeare books on my shelf, there are other ones we can look to with better ideals for love and passion than just Romeo and Juliet. Like, even our last episode, we did much ado about nothing. 
that has great examples of what real trusting love and romance is like between Beatrice and Benedict. But when it comes to something like this, it's like they barely knew each mm-hmm. other. This shouldn't be glorified and romanticized to the point where people are like, oh, I want a romance like Romeo and Juliet. That's not healthy. No, give me a romance like Viola and and Orsino. There's <laughs> because I think the key to those other plays versus this one is that between Beatrice and Benedict, Viola and Orsino, the plays are used to develop this relationship. You see the mm-hmm. here's us at the beginning. Here's us in the middle kind of getting to know each other one. Here's a moment of betrayal when we're unsure of our relationship. And here is finally the conclusion where we have come to truly love and appreciate one another. They didn't have that development within their relationship. So it's not even necessarily no. like the most accurate representation because you don't see that healthy development of a steady relationship. It happens in a night. And yes, there is a certain amount of infatuation involved, but I can't necessarily say it is worth the hype if you're looking for a good romance. I think it serves more for as a cautionary tale than of like an actual romance. I think it does more as an example of what not to do than to give an example of what love actually mm-hmm. is. And of course, I feel like I keep having to say this because I am not a Shakespearean scholar and I cannot say what specifically what people have studied, but of course, the opinions of love very well may have changed from then to now on what is considered mm-hmm. healthy or pure love. Maybe they were more into the love at first sight. Maybe they also looked at this as a cautionary tale and stopped and said, well, they ran into that a little bit fast. Because I remember in my English class, my teacher mentioning that if we're looking at this through the concept of this is a co- they thought this was a comedy until it turned into a tragedy, it is the hilariousness of how quickly they were just like, yeah, we're in love, we're going to get married tomorrow night, it's going to be great. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. well guess they're just in love no one really falls in love sure you can kind of infatuate and then be like okay maybe i'll text him maybe maybe i'll do this but then of course you've got your friend who's sitting there saying no don't do it but they kind of just sidestepped all of those ones and jumped right into the love so i think part of the way part of what has been romanticized about this play is the fact that it is a tragedy if it didn't have that um tragic aspect i don't know if it would be as revered as a romantic symbol i agree yeah i think the whole like dying for each other really seals the deal Mm -hmm. do you have anything to say about tybalt i'm curious about why you like tybalt i don't know like just from reading it for the first time like freshman year and then like seeing different versions of it also just wanting to make a little note Leonardo DiCaprio as Romeo haunts my nightmares. I hate it. I hate him. Just not a good vibe. Bad vibe. <sighs> That's I was all I'm going to say about that. I by that version in class. Oh my god, when they jump into the pool, that was just weird. Anyway, back to Tybalt. I don't know. I don't know what draws me to Tybalt so much. I think it's just like that level of dedication. But I don't know. I think I might have to read it again and then give my two cents after okay. reading it again. 
Alrighty, well, speaking of is it worth the hype, I think it's a good idea to turn to a teacher and see if she really thinks it is worth the hype. So we're going to pass the mic over to Miss Peck and see what her take is on teenagers. <sighs> Hi, everyone. First, Natalie's that's interesting thing. I do that, too. A student pointed it out about six years ago, and ever since then, I've been super self-conscious about it, and yet it's been very difficult to stop. I think I do it less now, but Natalie is totally right. It's a placeholder until I can say something of more substance. And Natalie, it's a really good teacher placeholder, so that'll serve you well when you are a teacher or professor someday. So, on to Romeo and Juliet. As the quote-unquote adult in the room, I'd like to speak about the adults in the play, but I'm going to take a long tangent first. It is relevant, though, I promise. First, I'll go back to your idea about Romeo and Juliet. We can argue that the teenagers are rash and irrational and that we shouldn't look up to Romeo and Juliet's relationship as a model for love. Yes, maybe adult viewers should not look to take relationship advice from Romeo and Juliet, but they probably remember being in a very similar situation because I actually think it's a great dramatic depiction of teenage love, infatuation, etc. The key word there is dramatic. It was never supposed to be realistic because realism is boring to watch on stage, but it is a beautiful amplification of what it feels like to be young and in love. I remember being 16 or 17 and just so totally infatuated with the person that I was with. It was what I would call joyous desperation. I just had to have this person all the time. I couldn't stand to be away from them. The relationship was like fire. And I thought we'd be together forever, but ultimately the relationship didn't last that long. What I was feeling though was real. What Romeo and Juliet are feeling is real. In fact, it's so real and powerful that most adults don't just forget this. In fact, I think a lot of adults long for that type of feeling again. The feeling of loving completely without reservation, without knowing what it's like for love to end. Honestly, without even thinking that end is possible. But going on a slight tangent, I think that advertisers capitalize on this feeling and try to sell the promise of this to consumers because it is really just that powerful. Of course, it's pretty manipulative to suggest to youngsters and adults alike that this is what love is and how a relationship should feel for the rest of their lives, but I digress. With that out of the way, we can turn to the adults in the picture. First, I'll look at the love lives of Capulet, or life, sorry, of Capulet and Lady Capulet. It's possible that Lord Capulet may have had his nice little teenage romp with love back in the day, but at least for Lady Capulet, it seems like she never had that. I can't know for sure, but she was a mother by Juliet's age. She speaks of marriage and childbearing as a duty without real pleasure. Because honestly, it seems like that was her experience. To marry was to reproduce her own lifestyle. She most likely grew up in a well-to-do family, she married rich, as she was supposed to, and she had a rich child, Juliet. She probably married Capulet because her family arranged it for her, and she is doing the same for her daughter with Paris. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that the same thing was true for the Montague parents, since Shakespeare paints the two families as basically mirror images. Now, although Juliet is of marrying age, Romeo isn't yet. 
I actually found something interesting about marriage in Renaissance Italy that I'll read to you right now. Okay, I had to edit out me clicking through a bunch of tabs there, but this is from Italian Renaissance Learning Resources that's in collaboration with the National Gallery of Arts from Oxford Press. So Renaissance marriages were not simply personal matters. They were crucial to the network of alliances that underlay a family's prosperity and prospects, and that, in turn, formed the fabric of loyalties, affection, and obligation that supported civic institutions. Arranging a suitable marriage involved family, friends, associates, and political allies. In aristocratic families, marriages were a currency of dynastic and diplomatic exchange, and they were not much different among the merchant families of Republican cities. In Florence, for example, Lorenzo de' Medici, de facto leader of the ostensibly Republican state, considered negotiating marriages among supporters a worthwhile use of his time and energy. Marriage not only reflected order, it was a civilizing influence on which the whole of society depended. Brides, especially in Florence, were typically much younger than grooms. Women as young as 14 were often married to men in their 30s, partly to ensure the bride's virginity. The age disparity had a number of consequences. Young men were more or less free to visit prostitutes who were semi-sanctioned in certain outlying districts. Relations between male youths and older men were regarded as fairly routine, particularly in humanist circles in which ancient Greece provided a respected model. And, of course, the large number of very young brides corresponded to a large number of widows, children of men who died, remained in the man's home, and a part of his extended family, his wife, did not. Instead, widows returned to the control of their own families, who now had to reassume their support or scramble to arrange a second dowry sufficient to attract another marriage proposal. So, Romeo would have had a few more years to figure things out before his own ideal age for marriage. He could sleep around with prostitutes and older men if he wanted to, but instead... Romeo is intent on finding love with a girl who is around his age, as we see with Rosaline and then finally with Juliet. On some level, I see this as at least a mild disruption of the social order. It's a totally teenager thing to do, something that's rebellious against what's expected by elders and society at large. Thinking of it this way, Juliet's choice to fall for Romeo and then suggest marriage, well, that's a total disruption of social order. And it makes sense. Not just from a they're rebellious teenagers perspective, but also from a feminist stance. She didn't have many options as a woman, so she said, screw it. And as an almost 14-year-old, that's a pretty bold choice. That brings us back to the adults in this situation. Behold the well-to-do Capulets and Montagues. On the one hand, maybe they care for their children. Capulet wants to marry Juliet off to the right man and does care about her consent. You could argue that it's just the system they live in and they have to deal with that. But what a system it is! Marrying off women as young as possible to maintain status and wealth, then using that wealth to have children to leave under the care of others. As we know, the nurse definitely knows Juliet way better than her own mother. And oh, by the way, using up any extra wealth and energy to maintain an old feud. If anyone is acting too childish in this play, it's the patriarchs of both of these families. Going out in the street with swords to create havoc and maybe get some people killed in the process? To me, that's toxic masculinity at its finest. And then we come to the friar, who, in my opinion, is the most interesting character in the play. 
And after considering all the points about the Capulets and Montagues, and considering that Friar Lawrence is a Franciscan, who that's an order that's trying to go back to the roots of Christianity and forego riches and live in poverty, right? Well, I'll argue that the friar is tired of all of this. He's obviously tired of the feud, but I think he's probably tired of the families in town having such a strong objective of maintaining the social and economic status quo. He's probably also tired of marriage being an institution of that same social and economic status quo, devoid of its spiritual meaning. And so he sees these two teenagers, pure in their passion for each other, willing to transgress all their families have laid out for them, and he decides to help them, and perhaps help Verona at large. I think some people characterize Friar Lawrence's actions as rash and inadvisable, but... I think he's probably been waiting a long time to be able to return some sense of spiritual balance to Verona. This is the perfect, most pure opportunity. And he's willing to risk everything for these two, but then again, how much does he have in the first place? My big question about the friar is why he leaves Juliet in the tomb at the end. That's always my question. I ask it of students. I ask it of myself every time I see this play. He could forcibly remove her. He doesn't, though. Some productions play this off by him being scared of the tomb, of what will happen to him. But the more I think about it, the more I think that it's a move of a man who is completely defeated. He tried to do something right. He tried to bring love together to get Verona's richest families to think about something other than reproducing the social and economic order. But in that moment in the tomb, he sees that it was all futile. And what's he going to do? Make Juliet live a life in which she's married off to the highest bidder? The adults in the play let Friar Lawrence off the hook in the end because, in quote, we still have known thee for a holy man. Oh, and by the way, that's the same thing Juliet tells herself when she wonders if the potion is something that will kill her. Uh, you could read that as forgiveness, or you could read it as his efforts, the Friar's efforts, never having mattered in the first place. In the end of the play, the feud is supposed to be finished. Whether or not it actually does, Verona's way of life remains the same. Montague pledges to raise Juliet's statue in pure gold. By the way, one-upping Capulet's request for his mere hand. Life will continue to be about wealth and status for these two families. And ever the pessimist, I'll say that I sort of doubt that they have learned very much. The more I think about this play, the more relevant it seems. Two young people want to change their worlds, and they try. Maybe that's why we find their love so timeless. It's not because it's smart. It's because it's transgressive. They don't win. But we keep producing this play, maybe in the hopes that someday they will. Somehow. Someday. Somewhere. All right, so uh, that was Miss Peck. And on... of course, always correct. She was our English teacher, my AP language, and Shakespeare teacher, Anna's Shakespeare teacher. Um, and she has taught us much about Shakespeare, and we continue looking to her for more information. But you know who else we look to for the, for the works of Shakespeare? Mr. Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> Sir Kenneth Mr. Branagh. Sir Kenneth Branagh. Sir Kenneth Branagh. He is knighted. You keep forgetting the Sir, Natalie. Well, I'm not used 
I'm not used to the concept of sirs and dames and all of that stuff. You just... So, so do you just want to keep calling him Kenny B? Yes. Okay. So, once again, Mr. Brown, Kenny B. If you're Thank listening, you. we really appreciate it. Um, and, yeah, he's a really cool... He, I appreciate yeah. what he's done for Shakespeare. Me too. And I think that we wouldn't have learned as much as we have learned about Shakespeare without either watching some of the things that he's done or at least just like reading up about what he's done yes because without those resources it is definitely difficult to there it is hard to find good quality resources to use to be able to watch or study shakespeare at least Mm -hmm. as a you know high school student using youtube and just crying all the time or like we also have the globe but like even with the pandemic i heard that it was Maybe not they were them. having financial troubles. So, um, support the globe, support Shakespeare people. This is a very tough time. If you have the if you have the resources to be able to support places like the globe, mm-hmm. do it. But also look to support um organizations and right now we are seeing a lot of stuff going on with Black Lives Matter and stuff. So I do feel it is important to use what you have to also support not only theater, but also people of color within theater. Mm-hmm. Um, I think within the description, I'll put some links to black theater companies or specifically uh, POC theater organizations. I'll see what I can find and put those links in the description of this episode. And then um, I might put them on the Instagram page too. Mm-hmm. I just, I have a question. Did for me you or call for the episode? Theater? I don't know what I said, Natalie. I'm tired. You really put the emphasis on that, eh? I'm going to drink some water and forget that I did that. All right. Thank you all for listening. Uh, check Thank us you. out on Instagram at Midsummer Nights Podcast. We will be back in a week with another episode. Uh, but until then, stay funky, stay spunky. Oh my gosh. Gramercy! Gramercy! Bye!